Uh, good morning. Great to see you here this morning. My name is Bryce Hales. I'm the uh, pastor here at Resurrection OC. And if you have a Bible with you, I would love to invite you to turn with me to John chapter 4. And if you didn't bring a Bible with you, you can find um, there's a blue Bible at the end of the rows of chairs. And if you're looking in one of those Bibles, you can find John 4 on page 889. We uh, are finishing this morning a series called Why. The last five weeks we have been um, looking at questions uh, that were submitted by people uh, in our congregation over the summer. And uh, what we've been trying to do is say, this is what it looks like to be a vulnerable community. It means um, coming and, and reasoning together and bringing our doubts and our questions to God and looking to Him and seeing um, how He will respond to them, how, how uh, we can wrestle with God and arrive uh, in some ways at answers and in, in other ways um, just with the confidence that He is God and that He's in control. And so this morning, the question that we're looking at is um, what I've been saving for the end because it's such a common question that, um, that people ask and that I hear all the time. The question is this, can I be spiritual without being religious? Can I be a spiritual person without being religious? And so we're going to look at how Jesus answers that question in uh, an encounter with a woman in John chapter 4. And we're going to pick up the conversation sort of midstream. And just to set the context here, Jesus has been uh, walking through a, a region called Samaria. And he comes to a well. And it's noon. It's the hot of the day. And there's a woman who's sitting there because she has gone to draw water in the middle of the day because she is a social outcast. And she's there at a time that she doesn't want to meet anybody else. And uh, she asks Jesus for water, and they have an interesting conversation. So let's read um, John chapter 4, starting in verse 16. Let me invite you to stand with me as we uh, show our deference to God's word. John 4, verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to her, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called the Christ. When He comes... He will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is God's word. Will you pray with me? God, would you be with us in spirit and in truth as we turn our attention, as we pause to listen to your word for just a few moments this morning. 
Would you help us to see uh, Jesus more clearly? Would you help us to see him as more beautiful and more believable than anything else that vies for attention? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, please. So I've been thinking a lot about hunger lately. It didn't get any easier this morning. I didn't know the taco truck was going to be set up quite as early this morning. But I've been thinking about hunger because as our kids have gone back to school this fall, my wife and I decided, you know, it's time to kind of bite the bullet and hit reset on a few things. And so we've been doing this diet for, for uh, three weeks now. And... Um, we're doing this like, I'm not going to explain it, it's like this paleo hipster biohacking diet where we basically just are trying to eat real food. That's the bottom line. And um, we're three weeks in and I feel great. Uh, my head feels more clear than it normally does. I've lost 10 pounds as of this morning. I was going to make a joke right there about like, you're probably looking at me thinking, gosh, how could you possibly have lost 10 pounds, this fine physical specimen? And then my mom this morning was like, I can tell you've lost weight. So that's probably what you're actually thinking. Um, it's been great, okay? The only problem is that I am hungry. I am hungry all the time. I am so stinking hungry. Even though I feel great and life is good at every moment, always lurking in the background is this gnawing, nagging sense that I just want to eat something, <laughs> anything. I don't really care what it is. And I'm sharing that with you this morning because my suspicion is that I'm not the only one. I am hungry. And I'm about to say something that I don't think is an overstatement, but it's going to sound like it at first. Nothing drives us as people who live in South Orange County more than our hunger, our appetite, our desire, the sense that life is good and we live in a beautiful part of the world and yet we are not satisfied. We want more and there is still something that is lacking. We want to be satisfied and in our hunger, we will stuff ourselves with anything that we think might possibly satisfy us. The funny thing about this diet is that I can really kind of eat whatever I want as long as it resembles rabbit food and it's between the hours of noon and 6 p.m. I can eat as much as I want, but I'm as likely to kind of stumble and fall and find my face landing in a bowl of peanut M&Ms as like a quinoa salad or something. Actually, let's be honest, I'm far more likely to eat the peanut M&Ms than the quinoa salad. Uh, because when we're hungry, everything sounds good, right? And as a culture, as people, we are like a person in a rescue raft floating in the middle of the ocean, dying of thirst, surrounded by miles and miles of water, and yet we can't drink it because it'll only make the thirst worse. We seek comfort and intimacy and relationships that they cannot fully satisfy us. We want more, so we throw ourselves into our work and we sacrifice our relationships, we sacrifice our time, we sacrifice community, but we're still hungry. We accumulate possessions, we go on beautiful vacations, we upgrade our homes and our cars, and yet that hunger still remains. It doesn't satisfy us, it's like drinking salt water. And I'm here to tell you this morning that that is not a bad thing. Being hungry 
and wanting more and being unsatisfied is not a bad thing, but it's drinking salt water. Think about it like this. If accumulating more resulted in satisfaction, then it would stand to reason that the more we accumulate, the less hungry we would be, right? If sex could satisfy you, think about this. You would have only done it once, maybe twice. <laughs> You're gonna be thinking about that later. <laughs> I didn't know my parents were going to be here. <laughs> and what this passage shows us in stunning beauty is this, that God wants to satisfy us. That God's intention is that we would know him in such a way that we are satisfied with his divine love. And he has created us so that we hunger and thirst for satisfaction. And nothing but his divine love will satisfy our hunger. And most of us, I think, have some like intuition, some inkling that that's true. Um, I don't really talk to many people who say um, something as blunt as, if I just had more money, I would be happy. Um, very few people are willing to just blatantly say, if everything in my life was the same but I had more sex, then like, life would just be great and I would be happy and satisfied. Um, we all, I think, have this intuition. Most of us say something like, I just want to be happy. But we have this intuition that um, there is a spiritual presence at work in the world. That there is a divine something in our universe. And just more accumulation, more stuff, more money, more experience will not satisfy that craving. And that if we're going to be satisfied, somehow it has something to do with this spiritual force at work in our world. And as a pastor, I find myself in conversations like this all the time. I think it's kind of a spiritual uh, or an occupational hazard for pastors. Uh, you've heard people say this all the time. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a spiritual person, but I'm not very religious, right? Well, as a pastor, I would, I would guess that I probably hear that 10 times for every one that you hear it, because as soon as somebody says, what do you do? It's like uh, the small talk is ended. It makes it really hard to find somebody to cut my hair. Um, <laughs> because every conversation, we immediately get to this point where somebody says something like, I was talking recently with a server at a pub that I go to from time to time, and she came up to me and she says, I know what you do for a living. I said, it's not a secret. <laughs> and she said, well, I'm a spiritual person, but I'm not religious. And it's sort of like this challenge, this kind of stiff arm, this, um, um, I, don't, I don't know exactly what it is, but I think that, uh, um, I think it's a summary in some ways of where many people in our world find themselves. Uh, we are hungry. We have this sense that there is a spiritual force at work in the universe, and if we're going to be satisfied, somehow we're going to have to come into contact with that spiritual presence. And yet we are reluctant to be involved in any sort of um, organized religion. Um, do I, okay, I want to know God, but do I have to have a relationship with this institution that feels rigid and has a questionable history? I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And I'm saying all of this to help you see that this is exactly the conversation that Jesus has with this woman in Samaria in John chapter 4. 
And I think that's a really remarkable thing because I think that we tend to think, you know, ancient people where they were so formal, they were so traditional, they were also religious. And yet in like, I don't know, four years ago, we discovered that you could be spiritual without being religious because we're modern people. And Jesus had this conversation with this woman 2,000 years ago. And um, Jesus is sitting at this well. He's at this well, and he gets into a conversation with this woman who, like I said, she's there in the heat of the day because she doesn't want to see anybody. She doesn't want anybody to see her. And we quickly find out why. Jesus says to her, go and get your husband. That's a weird thing to say when she says, can you give me a drink of water? He says, sure, go get your husband. Why? Um, well, Jesus is slowly drawing out of her that hunger, that, that dissatisfaction that is at work in her. And so she says to Jesus, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you're right, actually. Um, you've had five husbands. And the man that you now have isn't your husband. And he's using the word husband in a very literal sense there. Um, you know, the word husband, literally, it, it means to care for, right? Like animal husbandry, it's care for livestock. And Jesus is saying, you're right, what you, um, you, you have looked for satisfaction in men, and you've looked for satisfaction in sex, but you don't have someone to care for you. Jesus is saying to her, what you long for is not really sex, it's intimacy, it's knowing and being known. And the man that you have now is just using you. And Jesus is very gently drawing this hunger out of her. He's drawing this hunger out of her. And do you see what she, how she responds? She says, oh, I know who you are. You're one of those religious people. And then she, she takes the conversation to where this conversation always goes. It's the spiritual dodge. She says, oh, you religious people think you should worship in church. But I just worship in nature. You Jews think uh, you need to worship in Jerusalem. We Samaritans, we worship on this mountain. Nobody really knows who's to say. Don't pin me down, you religious guy. Don't be so, uh, you know, don't get all uptight on me, bro. I'm a spiritual person. I'm just not very religious. And then what Jesus does is he does something that nine out of ten Americans say you should never do. Uh, I saw this this week. 89% of Americans say you should never criticize somebody else's life choices. And Jesus looks at this woman who's just said, you know, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And he said very kindly, very gently, he said, the reason that you think that is because you don't know who God is. The reason that you think that is because you don't know what you're talking about. And I know most of us are super uncomfortable with the idea that, uh, that I would ever say to somebody, you know, what you value, what you say you've built your life around, it's wrong. Um, but what Jesus is showing us here um, is that sometimes that's what he calls us to do. And the reason he's doing that is not to shame this woman, not to condemn this woman, but because he knows how to help. I heard a friend um, talking about this. Uh, he said that he had this plumbing emergency in his house, and he tried to uh, fix it, and it just made it worse, and so he called a plumber. And he's watching the plumber work, and the plumber's like soldering and welding things, and, and he says, to the, my friend says to the plumber, I never would have done it like that. And the plumber turned to him and said, 
With all due respect, sir, it's because you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> the plumber knows how to help, right? And so he told him that he didn't know what he was doing, and that's what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is saying, the reason that you're saying that is because you don't actually know who God is. Now, that was kind of a long intro, but what I want you to see, uh, there are two things I want you to see in this passage. And uh, the first is, I want you to see what's wrong with saying, I'm spiritual but not religious, and it's not what you think, I'm going to say. But the second thing um, that I want you to see in this passage is that Jesus actually gives the solution for our hunger. So first, what's wrong with the I'm spiritual but not religious thing? Well, the first thing I'm going to say is everybody is spiritual, okay? And I'm not, literally not going to say anything more than that. Everybody is spiritual. God created every human being in his image as spirit and body. And to say, I am spiritual, I'm a spiritual person, is like saying, I am a person who uh, breathes air. You know, I'm a person who has a body. I am a person, I'm a spiritual person. It's universally true, and therefore, and I don't mean this like in a condescending way, I just don't think it's a terribly helpful thing to say. And um, everybody's spiritual. I think most people agree, so I'm not going to say much about that. The second thing I want to say, though, is you're probably going to want to argue with me about this. And this is the second thing, that everybody is religious. Every single person is religious. And what I mean by that is this, that whatever is most important in your life, you will approach that thing with a significance that can only be described as religious. It might be your kids. It might be football. I know atheists who are religious about beer. And I know people who are religious about not being religious. And what I mean by that is this. Um, whatever you value in life, whatever is ultimate to you, you will do many things around that thing. Does that make sense? You will ritualize it. You will evangelize others about its benefits. You will build community around it. You will make sacrifices to it. And you will look with incredulity upon anyone who questions it. And if that's not a definition of religious, I don't know what is. I did this yesterday watching college football. Okay? I ticked my family off because I wanted to watch the game so badly. Sacrificed other things, right? And then I texted Jason the whole time, are you watching this? This is awesome. <laughs> Yes, we like text back and forth during the whole game. We're building community around this event, right? Everyone is spiritual and everyone is religious. So let's just not be so condescending about it, okay? Jesus is talking to this woman who has chased men with religious fervor and far from satisfying her, it has dehumanized her. It has removed her from community, has put her in a place where she can't go to a grocery store because she doesn't want to run into anyone. And that's what is true. The same thing is true for us. The things that we endow with religious significance will enslave us, and they will dehumanize us. If we make our kids' happiness the most important thing in our lives, what happens? We sacrifice our time, we sacrifice our money, we sign them up for every activity, we drive them from, you know, to everything on the planet. Um, you know, we sacrifice relationships, and if somebody dares question what we're doing, we turn around and say, I have to do this. It's for my kids. How dare you? How dare you question? Um, 
and yet, we, we, does that result in satisfaction? Like, who loves driving to Temecula for soccer every weekend? Nobody, right? I um, met this week with the principals of uh, Ladera Ranch Elementary and Middle School, and um, I was asking them, what, what, are things, what do you see in the lives of students and families in your school? And um, they said, the, the overriding thing I would say is it's not okay here to be average. It is not okay for children to be average. It's interesting because by definition, some people have to be average, right? <laughs> um, but see what happens when we elevate our kids to this level of worship. We raise the bar so high that it's impossible for them to just be kids. And these principles told me that the result is often that kids are completely unacquainted with failure. It's not that they don't fail, they just don't know how to deal with it at all. And mom and dad swoop in and fix it. And that does not make for healthy adults. See, when we make something other than God, the thing that we worship, we expect so much of it. And it can never live up to the, the expectations. Now, if you're going, what's wrong with this guy? What is he like kids? Listen, I probably have more kids than anybody in the room, right? <laughs> so I like kids. Kids are great at being kids, and they're really bad at being religions. Okay? Jesus looks at this woman and says, it's not wrong that you're hungry. It's not wrong that you want more out of life. It's not wrong that you want to be satisfied. But sex will never satisfy you. So let me show you what will satisfy. The second thing I want you to see in this passage is what will actually satisfy. Jesus has this conversation, and he says, um, or she says to Jesus, you guys say, you know, you think we should worship over there, we worship here, you go to church, I go to the beach, whatever. You know, I worship in nature, it's all the same thing. And Jesus says to her, it's fascinating, Jesus says, in a way, you're actually right. But you don't really understand the way in which you're right. Um, so let me show you what will truly satisfy the hunger that eats away at you. And look at what he says uh, in verses 21 and following. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Okay, saying in a way you're right. God is way bigger than this mountain or that temple. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. What is Jesus saying will satisfy? It's the word that I just said like 12 times. Worship. And I know you're like, wow, that is so incredibly underwhelming. And it's because we don't understand what worship really is. And let me try to help you understand what worship really is. Um, in the Book of Common Prayer, it's like a 400-year-old Anglican prayer book, um, contains many phrases and, and language that's common to us in the English language because of the influence of the, the church and the Anglican church. And uh, in the wedding service, in the, um, the traditional wedding service in the Book of Common Prayer, when the husband and, or bride and groom exchange rings, this is what they say to one another. The groom places the ring on his bride's finger and he says, with this ring I thee wed, with my body 
with my body, IV worship. And I've never really had the guts to use that in a wedding I've done, because people are like, what in the world does that mean? And Jesus is showing us, well, the Book of Common Prayer is helping us understand that worship is about bringing all that I am, every single fiber in my being, my body, and losing myself in service to my beloved. And that is worship. Jesus is saying something that sounds completely backwards to us, and my contention is that it's just counterintuitive enough to actually be true. What he's saying is that the satisfaction that we crave, the hunger that we experience will never be satiated by stuffing ourselves with things or people or experiences. Our hunger will only be satisfied by giving ourselves away. Our hunger hunger will only be satisfied as we lose ourselves in something larger than ourselves. And I think, in a sense, we all have an inkling that that's actually probably true, don't we? Um, I mean, that explains in so many ways the popularity of getting involved in a cause or social justice or, you know, whatever all these amazing good things that um, that we get excited about. But in order for worship to be truly satisfying... We have to worship the one who can bear the weight of all that we are. What human person, what experience, what thing, what stuff could ever bear the weight of all your hopes and your dreams and your fears and your failures other than God himself? Only God can satisfy us. And so what does Jesus tell the Samaritan woman? He says to find satisfaction for our hunger We must worship, but how how does he describe the worship that we must engage in? He says, we must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, what does that mean? Well, first it means that we must worship in spirit. Our worship must be spiritual. Uh, What does that mean? It means worship must be experiential. It must be emotional. It must be authentic. Um, This is not just a... uh, you know, you do you, um, you go find your worship thing and you just go all in on that. Listen, we have done that as a culture. We don't believe that there is no truth. We believe that there are seven billion possible truths and you've got to go find your own. And the result is that we are more lonely, we are more hungry, we are more dissatisfied as a culture than we have ever been. Jesus is saying that in order to worship in spirit, we must worship in a way that is emotionally engaging, that is experiential, that is authentic to who we are. And some of us, I think temperamentally, are really, really nervous about that. Um, Some of us, uh, some Christian traditions, traditions within the Christian church, um, tend to be very suspicious of religious or, uh, or worship experience. Um, we are a Presbyterian church. doesn't mean everybody in the room is a, is a Presbyterian, but that's the tradition that our church comes out of. And historically, we have been very, very suspicious of experience. But worship that is spiritual is worship that engages the whole person, the whole of our beings. Worship that is spiritual is worship that recognizes that as I come to God, the eyes of God are on me. And my father sees me and he smiles at me and he loves me. And if that doesn't move me in response, then there's a disconnect somewhere, isn't there? It's soccer season uh, for many of us with kids. And I've got three boys playing soccer. 
I'm coaching my middle son's soccer team, and um, yesterday, our first game was a week, like eight days ago, and we got totally blown out. And so yesterday, we're driving to our game, and I'm having a pep talk with them in the car, and I'm saying, hey, buddy, if we're going to win today, you're probably going to have to score a goal. And he's like, yeah, Dad, I know, but I've never scored a goal before. And, you know, five, seven minutes into the game, somebody's running down the field, and he crosses it into the center, and my eight-year-old boy just knocks it into the goal. And it was so beautiful. I'm like, <laughs> so happy, and I'm jumping up and down. And he turns, and he looks right at me. And he lifts his arms. And at that moment, he knows I just did what my dad said I had to do. And my dad loves me, and he runs over his hands in the air, and he gives me this big hug. And if you have met the God of the universe, and he smiles at you, and you know that his eyes are on you, and that he loves you, and you've never had an experience where you wanted to stand up and say, yes, did everybody just see that? I'm sorry, I guess. I don't even know how the answer finished that sentence. That's a bummer, man. <laughs> Worship that is spiritual is worship that knows that my Father's eyes are on me. That God is smiling at me and we respond with joy and emotion. We move our bodies. We raise our arms. Now having said all that, let me give this caveat. And the caveat, caveat is this, that white people, when the Spirit comes, tend to get very quiet. <laughs> very still. And uh, you've seen this. Uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe it's happening now. But the room gets very quiet and nobody moves and nobody's rustling pages. Amen. Thank you. That's okay too. And many of us, I suspect, are looking for an experience of worship. And I think in some ways that is what is driving this, like, I'm spiritual but not religious thing, is I want the experience of an encounter with God without the shackles of this stuffy formal tradition. Um, can I know God without this rigid formalism? Can I experience divine love without the confining structure of an institution with a questionable past? We long for the experience. We crave the experience, however we get it. And so we say things like, well, you Christians worship in church, but nature is my church. I worship outside. You worship there. I worship here. Ah, who knows? It's all the same, right? And uh, again, because I'm a pastor, people say stuff like that to me all the time, and I normally just don't say anything because what I'm thinking is, that makes me so mad. Um, <laughs> but if I, like, the thing I sort of want to say is like, yeah, how's that working out for you? Um, which is like a snarky, less than kind thing to say. Um, okay, sure, but like, do you, okay, so you're gonna go to the beach, but are you gonna actually worship God there? You're just gonna be at the beach, right? But I think a better response to that would be something like this. Come to church and worship God here. And it will enhance your worship everywhere you go. Because when you go to the beach and you, your breath is taken away by the beauty of God's creation, you're not just looking at a physical thing that is ultimately going to disappear. It is a beautiful picture of God, the creator God, who loves you, who gave himself for you and who is making everything new. When you come to church and worship God here, you will make everything else, it will make everything else in life better because you will see the traces, the fingerprints of God everywhere you go. 
And at the same time, you won't expect too much of anything else. The beach can just be the beach. Vacation is just, you can enjoy a meal because it doesn't have to save your life. Of course God cannot be contained in a building. Of course God is bigger than any one group of people or any ethnicity. Of course, of course. Of course God is bigger than a 75-minute worship service once a week. Of course he's bigger than that, but he's not smaller than that. And how will you ever know that he's bigger than that and that he is the one who loves you unless you are involved in the life of a worshiping community? I'm not taking nature away from you. I'm trying to actually give it to you. If you learn to worship God in spirit, you won't um, need those other experiences to carry the weight of all that you are. And then you can truly enjoy them. Worship must be in spirit. But the last thing, um, the second thing Jesus says about, about worship is that it's not just in spirit, it's also in truth. We must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that worship that satisfies must be worship of the actual God who really exists. Um, Not the God of my common sense, not the God of my imagination, not the God that I hope exists, but the God who actually exists. And so what it means is worship in spirit and in truth means listening to God as he says, as he tells us who he is and what he is like in his word. Letting him be the one to define himself for us instead of defining him to our own satisfaction. He is a person. He gets to reveal who he is. I mean, isn't that just true about anybody that you've ever met? I mean, think about uh, when you start dating a person. Uh, It's a process of learning what that person is like, not about dictating what you want that person to be like. Falling in love is, is just kind of this experience of being mesmerized as you discover more and more about who this person is. The God who wants to know you, who satisfies you with himself and gives you meaning and purpose in life, is the true God who wants to make himself known to you. Many people today use experience to kind of hold the truth at arm's length. And cold, formal, dead religion is the opposite, using the truth to hold experience at arm's distance. And I have to confess that that is certainly my tendency. I have to wrestle with this stuff every week. And it'd be so much easier to just get up here and tell you things that are true than actually um, open myself up with the vulnerability of knowing a God who's going to tell me things that I don't want to hear. And yet on the other side of that, there is nothing like the satisfaction that comes from encountering from an experience of the truth of God as he has made himself known in his son. Sometimes God breaks in. And from the inside, there's nothing that compares to the experience of knowing his love, knowing that the smile of God is upon you, that he is satisfied with you because of Jesus. Worship that satisfies our hunger is worship in spirit and in truth. It's worship... um, See, this is what Jesus is saying to this woman, that true worship is, is not this like ecstatic experience only, and it's not this cold, formal, rigid truth, but it's when those two come together that we actually are worshiping the living and true God. I came across this video on YouTube about um, uh, cocoa farmers in the Ivory Coast in Africa, 
and uh, farmers who farm um, cocoa beans and have never tasted chocolate. And um, they, don't, they don't understand why these Westerners would want to eat these beans. They're, um, they're bitter, they don't taste good. Um, you put them in a barrel and they ferment and it looks gross. Have you ever seen how you make chocolate? It's gross. And there's this video where this man comes and he offers a square of chocolate to a farmer in the Ivory Coast who's never tasted. He doesn't even know. Uh, this man says, um, I just grow them for a living, frankly. I don't know what makes what one even makes from cocoa beans. And somebody shows him doesn't just show him, gives him a bite of chocolate to taste it. And his whole face lights up. And he runs over and he gathers his friends and he passes around this bar of chocolate. He says, everybody has to, has to take a square. And this, this whole you know, community begins to sit in this circle and eat chocolate for the first time when their whole lives they've known that these Westerners like this bean for some reason and they don't know why. And the truth begins to seep into their experience. And they're overwhelmed. They're overwhelmed. When the truth and experience meet, that's worship. You lose yourself in the only person who can carry all of you, all of who you really are. That's worship. Okay, so how do you get that? How do you do that? How do you get that experience? How can you discover the truth about God? Here's the good news. The truth about, uh, the, here's the good news about the truth of God. You don't have to go looking for him because he is looking for you. That's what Jesus says to this woman. The Father is seeking those who will worship in spirit and in truth. Uh, there's hardly anything more common in our culture to say, it is so arrogant and self-righteous to say that you have found the truth. And Jesus is saying, yeah, if you're, if you're saying, I sat down, I considered every single option, and I arrived at the perfect um, only solution, and therefore everyone should listen to me. That, yeah, that is absolutely arrogant. But that's not how truth comes to us. Jesus is saying the Father is seeking those who will worship. God comes to us and makes himself known. This is the whole story of the Bible. From the opening pages, uh, Adam and Eve turn their backs on God, and God comes looking for them and says, Adam, where are you? And God comes and fights Abraham and says, you are going to be mine and your people will be my people. And God comes to Moses when Moses doesn't know who God is and says, I'm going to make myself known to you. And he comes to, to David and he comes to Matthew and to Peter and to Paul, not just when they're not looking for him, but when you know, Paul is actively opposing the work of God in the world. And God comes to us most perfectly and clearly in Jesus. And he shows us what life is really meant to look like. And then he dies on the cross for us, taking the penalty for our sin. And then he rises again from the grave uh, for us, bringing us into newness of life. And he ascends into heaven where he now rules all things. And he says, I am now sending you out into the world with meaning and purpose to live a life guided by this experience of worshiping God in spirit and in truth. God comes and looks for us. Truth comes to us. The Father is seeking you. Several years ago, I was speaking. Um, I was the speaker at this middle this camp in like uh, Northern California, and um, I was driving a van full of teenagers down the five 
in Northern California, and I'm driving like 80 miles an hour, and the teenagers are all messing around in the back of the van, and I catch this billboard out of the corner of my eye that just grabbed my attention because it was clearly not a professionally designed billboard. And I looked at it ever so briefly, and there was like three pictures, like homemade snapshots, or home, like snapshots taken at home of like an eight-year-old boy. And it said underneath those pictures, I will find you. I will never give up. Love, Mom. I'm driving this van full of teenagers, like silently weeping. Because guys, that is the gospel. The Father saying, I will come and find you. I will never give up. Love, God. The Father is seeking you. That is the good news that Jesus came to make clear. Maybe you're experiencing that right now. And if so, I would encourage you to respond. Um, Maybe you just came expecting nothing really to happen, but you're here because somebody invited you to be here. Or because it's Sunday and you just show up at church on Sundays without really thinking about it. There There are incredibly good ways to respond if you feel the Father seeking you right now. If you just hear the voice of Bryce, then sorry. (laughs) There's probably something better you could have done with your time this morning. But if you have the sense in your heart that what you're experiencing is worship in spirit and in truth, then you owe it to yourself and you certainly owe it to God to respond. Come back next week. Join a community group. Serve your friends, your neighbors. Ask yourself what you are looking for to satisfy, or what you think will satisfy your hunger, and then don't endow it with that significance. But don't let the experience of God's truth pass you by and fail to seize the moment to respond to Him. We are hungry, hungry people because that's how God has made us. But He's also made us to be satisfied with his love, and he has made his love clear to us in Jesus. We respond to him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this beautiful um, passage where Jesus comes and speaks to this woman in a way that doesn't make sense um, to us if we are steeped in religion, why doesn't he condemn this woman? Or if we're just looking for an, ex- you know, a- an opportunity to let everybody do their own thing, how could he ever say um, such startling words to her? And yet in um, this story, we see the perfection of your truth wedded to the beauty of your grace. And God, I pray this morning that we would not leave this place without taking the opportunity to respond to Jesus, to his beauty. God, would you help us to cry out to you and ask you to be the one who satisfies us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.